0: Good morning. Uh, my name is John, and uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, then uh, I am one of the pastors here, along with my wife, Sarah, and Mitch, who you saw up here leading worship, and i uh, very grateful that you are with us this morning. And wanted to pass on a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you as well. Um, we left on Christmas morning at 6 a.m. We flew out to Alberta, which is where I grew up, northern Alberta, and we spent about 10 days there with my family, so it was really great to be there, but also very glad to be um, to be back here and excited about what God has for us in this, uh, in this new year, in this new season. Um, so we are in a new year, and uh, I know two things about uh, the new year. The first thing is that there will be new people here that are checking us out. And so uh, if you are new, welcome. You and uh, would love to say hi to you after the gathering. Please come up and introduce yourself. Tell us, uh, tell me how you found out about this place. If I'll just tell you two things about us. One of the things we wanted to do today is talk a little bit about who we are and kind of give you a little bit of an idea of who we are. I'll tell you two things. The first thing is this: um, that we don't start on on time. We don't really do anything on time, actually. Uh, So I think I've changed it on both our website and on, like, Google, that we start at 10.05. But even that is probably pushing it, realistically, okay? So we, we, we aspirationally start at 10.05, more like uh, 10.10. So if you if you want to make this your church home, I just encourage you to come uh, around that time so you're not awkwardly the only person here. The other thing is, is if you want to get to know me a little bit here, we can go back. We want to go back a couple slides. Uh, Caleb, keep going. Here, this is me. Uh, So, I made this slide. Very proud of it. Uh, It's wrong. Uh, I'm not a detail-oriented person. And so, the top is correct that there's a ladies board game hangout there. I got that part right. Um, Yeah, thank you. Uh, And the other two are leftovers from Christmas. So... There is, it's true that there's no Sunday gathering on Wednesday, because that's a Wednesday. Um, That's the youth day, and then uh, the ladies' wreath-making party might happen on the 29th of next year, but it is actually uh, the newcomer's lunch. And so there's something about me, I'm not a detail-oriented person, I had a few too many things going on, and put this up there. But uh, there you go, there's a couple things about me. Um, the second thing I know about this time of the year, and it doesn't really matter probably who you are, whether you're new here or whether you are like been here forever, is that at this time of the year, we kind of uh, take a look back at the, the previous year, at 2022, and maybe you just take stock of where we are in life, and then we kind of look ahead to this next year. And we, we look at things that we want to, you know, what are some things that happened last year that, that have been great, that we want to keep the same and, and continue to do in this next year. but But also, it's a time where we make changes. And whether you're a person who likes resolutions or not. My wife hates that word. I don't mind it at all. But, you know, we kind of think about things that we want to change for this year. So uh, for me, for example, I um, was looking at my app Strava, which is the app that I use to track uh, running and biking. And I was looking back over the past year, and I realized that in, in my biking, all the personal bests that I had from this past year, and there were like quite a few, I don't mean to brag, but there were like a decent amount, but they were all me going downhills, which just, if you're not familiar with biking, it just means that I'm fatter than I used to be, like I'm carrying more weight, so there's no no uphill personal best, but just downhill, fatter is faster on a bike, and so I'm like, oh, this year, one of my goals before riding season starts kind of in May, is that I would like to lose like five to ten pounds to be able to climb a little bit better, to be a little bit stronger. And I think we all have those different things, whether they're related to like fitness or or weight or learning or whatever. But we also, you know, as people who gather here in this place, wherever you are, if you're just here checking out faith for the first time or you've been a Christian for a very long time, we also come in this time and we think about spiritually, you know, how do we want things to change for us in this new year as well? And uh, as uh, Sharon talked about, one of the things that we talk about in, in this community is the rule of life. And, and so you can go and look on our website about this, but basically we're a group of people who are trying to follow Jesus. We want to put Jesus in the center, despite the differences that we have, and learn how to follow him, direct our lives in a direction towards him. And one of the ways that we do that is, is with this rule of life. And so this is our community rule of life. We encourage each person in our in the community to have a rule of life, which is basically just a set of practices and habits that help us to grow in this season towards becoming like Jesus. And so there's all sorts of different habits that we have on here. There's fasting, there's taking a Sabbath, there's having a, a monthly conversation with a, a neighbor or a coworker who's not a person of faith. And, and one of them is also about uh, reading scripture, reading God's word. And so I think uh, many of us, uh, you know, very ambitiously, like maybe my goal to lose five to 10 pounds is a pretty ambitious goal. Maybe you have these ambitious goals, too, of, of reading Scripture and um, coming to God's Word fresh and anew this year. And that's great. Um, but we often happens at, the, at this time of the year as we start reading, so that's really good, but we can quickly get confused and we can, we can stop pretty quickly. And there's lots of reasons why, but one of the reasons I, I, I want to talk about today is that I think we come to the Bible with some wrong assumptions of what the Bible is and what we're going to get out of it. And one of the people I really like to listen to uh, is Tim Mackey. He's the co-founder of this uh, organization called The Bible Project. If you're not familiar with them, they make really great videos on YouTube that introduce you to the Bible. I would strongly, strongly recommend it. And he says there's kind of three different ways that we're programmed to come to the Bible that set us up not for success for a year of growing in faith. And, And so he says the first way is that we come to the Bible as if it's a divine behavior manual that it's trying to tell us exactly what we should do in each step of our life, how we should behave, how we should be good. The second way that we, we come to the Bible that's incorrect is that we come to it like it's a theological dictionary. So we come to this 66-volume library, and we try to, try to reduce it down to its lowest common denominators, to its co- uh, common components, and then we, we try to learn that and memorize it. And, uh, and, and that's what we are doing every time we read Scripture. And, and so it's kind of using our brains uh, a little bit more. The first one um, is more along how we behave. The second is our brains. And then the third one is our emotions. And we come to it as a devotional grab bag. Um, and so you open up the Scripture every morning. You say, like, maybe I'm going to spend 10 minutes every day in, in God's Word. That's my goal. And you open it up, and you expect that it's going to have something to kind of, like, engage your emotions to carry you throughout the day. Now, all of these have truth to them. God does want us to learn how to walk. Uh, I just finished reading um, the uh, First Nations uh, version of the New Testament, which is great. I recommend it to any of you, who, who, uh, any of us here. Um, and it, it often uses this metaphor. It says that God, Jesus invites us to walk the good road with him. And so there is, there is a, a way that God wants us to live and a way that God wants us to walk. So there are behavioral things that he wants us to do. There is theology. God invites us to be people who engage our minds and learn about him. And of course, God will sometimes when we open his word, he'll minister to us and he'll meet us in those places very, very uh, amazingly. But that's actually not at the center of what God's word is. And I think it can set us up for um, unsuccess when we read various passages, especially if you start reading in the, Uh, Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, like, what, you know, what is possibly the uh, devotional grab bag of the passage that says, don't boil a calf in its mother's milk? That's in the Bible. And if that's your reading for the scripture for the day, what are you, how are you supposed to make any sense of that? How is that supposed to warm your heart, right? It's a confusing passage. And so, today I want to look a little bit at what is the Bible at its most fundamental level to try to help us to... uh, if, if that's what you're doing this year, it's trying to, to engage more in God's word, which is something I would strongly encourage you to. And so I'm going to use uh, the whiteboard to try to help us today. Um, for me, it's a, it's a really helpful tool in organizing my thoughts, so I hope it will be helpful for you, and I hope that I will not destroy your ears on the way. If it mics faces that, yeah. I think the mic's going to face that, so... I don't know. Again, not a detailed person, right? I I didn't think it all the way through. But let's just take a look at at some of the first words of the Bible. So the first three words in the Bible are in the beginning. In the beginning. And then some of the last words in the, the end of the Bible. So we have a book called Revelation, almost the last chapter. It says, And they will reign forever and ever. And I apologize, my writing will probably just get messier as we go along. But if this is what we have, the first few words of of the story, and then the last few words of the story, or I guess I'm giving away the punchline here, what do we have? Is it a divine behavior manual or something different? And I think what it's setting up for us is actually something very different. It's setting up a story for us, a narrative. We have a library of books here that are trying to invite us in to a story. And not only can we observe that, that this is a narrative, but if we zoom out a little bit on each of these passages, we'll see what some of the storylines from the, the Bible are. Um, what's the first thing, does anybody know, that God creates in this narrative of Genesis 1? My wife tells me not to ask questions I already know the answer to. So I'll just give you the answer. Um, there's, it's God creates light, right? There's the problem of darkness, and so God creates light. And so we have all these different themes that run through. And if we, if we were to look at the previous part of this verse, it says that God will give them light. God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so light and darkness is one of these themes that carries all throughout the story. And there's a whole bunch of these themes. Some scholars call them intercanonical themes, if you want to look that up, or motifs. If you follow the Bible project like I do, they call these design patterns that come throughout Scripture. And there's loads and loads of different themes, and they're really important for us if we're going to read the story because we'll get stuck in these weird parts of the story where we have absolutely no clue what's going on. But if we we know these themes, we know the themes that carry us through the story, then we can make sense of uh, more parts of the Scripture as we go. And so I just want to look at one theme this morning together with us. So we're going to start here, again, in the beginning of the story in Genesis 1-1. And it says, In the beginning, God created. And so we see the character, the first character that we have in the story, and it's the character of God. And this is a really important word for us, because, um, again, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he would say, when we use this word, we're all inputting different ideas of what we think of when we think of God. If we were to go around this room, we would have different ideas of who God is. Probably one of the first things that we would say if I asked you who is God, we would say God is our Father. And that's right, that's something that Jesus teaches us to say, but that's something that happens later on in the story. We also have to realize when we use that word, Father, that we're importing our own story into that, about who my Father is. And I'm very uh, thankful I have a very, very good Father, and so I have warm feelings towards that word. But maybe some of you don't. Maybe when you think of God as father, maybe you think of someone who is very, very diff- distant. Or maybe someone who is abusive. Or you didn't have a father. And those are, those are very difficult words for you to import into God. But the story doesn't start here. It says that God is some, something else. God starts with, uh, he is our, or he is the creator. And that's where the story begins is that we're supposed to see that God is creating something. Again, as I just finished reading this First Nations version of the New Testament, they continually say this again and again. That's, that's who they refer to, is God as their creator. And so what does God create in this story? Well, he creates many things. He creates light. A couple weeks ago, during our Advent series, we talked about how God creates shalom, which is this picture of cosmic flourishing. And there's many other things uh, God creates order, but in, in Genesis 2, we're introduced to this idea that God creates, maybe a vision of what he creates is the garden, a garden. Now, in Hebrew, this word is the word gan, and in Greek, but in Greek, the word is uh, translated slightly differently. And I'm not saying this just to show you that I did a little bit of research this week, which I did too, by the way. But the word is paradisos, paradisos, which we have translated into a word in English, paradise. That's the word that's being used here, is paradise. And again, this is a loaded word for us. What does this, all of us have a vision of the good life. All of us have an idea of what paradise is, that we're trying to live out, that we're looking forward to, that we're hoping in. And so this is a really important word for us. So what does God's paradise look like well, I've used this this vision for us before, but I'll, I'll do it again. That this is an idyllic place, uh, and it's a paradise place because it's it's in the right order. It's a place of shalom. And so, what the Bible says is that God is at the center of this place. That me, as myself, I, I am like submitting to God. I'm not God, but I'm in close relationship with Him. And because of that, and and I'm in close relationship with others. When things are rightly ordered, when God is at the center. We're in right relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and then also with creation. And it's kind of this picture, this symbiotic picture of being rightly ordered. And things are are good, things are at shalom. And God places uh, a certain group of people in this garden. So he creates, finally, the last thing is that he creates people. And he puts them into this garden and while the story describes, like I said, an idyllic place, it's because of this. But the creation narrative, the garden, is not finished. It's, it's continuing on, and this is the invitation that God has, is for us to continue this work of creation, to mirror him into the world. And this is really important for our vision of what it means to be human. I don't know about you, but I, I uh, grew up in the church and one of the ideas that I had about what paradise was or what ideal I like the idyllic world was was kind of like a heavenly all inclusive, if that makes sense. Um it's just like I would I was going to this place where I just get to play hockey all day and um I would my mom would never stop me from drinking pop. I could just drink as much as I wanted, and every game of Mario Kart, you know, I would win. Um, I don't know. I had very big dreams, as you could tell, uh, as a child. But these are like the kind of things that I thought of when I thought of paradise or maybe what we might call in English heaven. That's kind of my vision as a kid. And that sounds really fun, and it would be fun maybe to do for a little while, but that's actually a very foreign vision to what the Bible says when it uses this word, when it gives us this idea. Um, because it's actually an invitation for us to partner. To partner with God and to partner with other people in in creating the shalom, in extending this garden, extending this paradise into the rest of the world. And I would say this, as I've grown older, that, that has really been helpful to me. Because I, I probably, in, in that vision that I had of paradise uh, as a young person, what my, I didn't really know what to do with the rest of my life. I had no vision for what to do in the time between saying yes to Jesus and reaching this final paradise state. This vision for me has been really helpful because I'm a person who likes to create. I'm not, I'm not like an artist or a songwriter or anything like that, but I love to partner with people in their ideas and making them come into reality. And that's the invitation that God has here at the very beginning of the story, and that's the invitation that he has for every single one of us, is to reflect him in this world that's full of potential in order to create, to bring more shalom, to bring more light into darkness. And if you're familiar with the story, these first people who are creators, they have a choice. Because they are co-creators, they have a choice. They can partner with God to create more light, or they can partner with this dark force. There's a snake that emerges in the story. And if you know, they choose this path. They choose this path to partner with darkness. So instead of creating shalom, instead of increasing light into the world, they bring darkness. And it spirals out of control. The first kind of first 11 chapters are this vision of just the the world spiraling out of control. And what happens is that all of these relationships break down. And so when the people choose to insert themselves as God, not to listen to him and obey him, their relationship gets broken with them. And so they start asking these questions. I don't know who I am. I lose the vision of who I am as a person. And I go and search for that in other places. My relationships with other people get broken down. And so we see... This, this amazing a sentence that said that the people are filled with shame. They don't know who they are, and the relationship between the people are broken. They're naked, and they feel shame. And of course, we see that the, the world has also been cursed because of sin in the world. And so all of these different relationships are broken down. And we're sent in search now uh, in the world to find out who we are how we can be right relationship with people, what we should worship, what we should put at the central place of our lives, and how we can take care of, of this world without abusing it and overusing it. And that's the story that mobilizes this, this the questions, I should say, that mobilize the rest of, of this story. Now, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. The good news, or, the, or sorry, one last piece of bad news before the good news. Here's this, that you can't just go back there's a really interesting part of this story, if you've read it, at the very beginning, where it says God places angels at the garden. He kicks the people out of the garden, and he puts angels there to stop them. So we're mobilized by this story, this question as well how can we get back to paradise? But we can't re enter the garden. But the good news is that God doesn't give up on the people. We're still creators, we still want to create, but God gives us an opportunity. And so one of the themes that, that comes up through the story is that God continues to make places that can function as uh, paradise. And so we see the emergence of the city in here. It's a place with promise. They're places that are often centers of worship, if you read through the scriptures, and even today. They're places where people go to create and cultivate, where culture thrives and they become power hubs of societies. They're places with lots of people. And so they, they promise paradise and what we have through the story of the scripture is two different versions, again, of the city. So we've, we've kind of found ourselves in this place that's down here. But God continues to work with people, and he offers two different versions. I'm just going to draw this a little bit higher so that you can see it. And so the first city, we'll just pretend that this comes, well, we'll just go like this, from here to here, is the city of Jerusalem. And this city, we can just see, even see from its name what it promises. It's, it's the city of Shalom. It's what it is. It's returning back to the story, to the original story, the city of God's peace. And so it's a hope and a vision that, that a city can be actually a place of refuge, a place of flourishing, a, a place of paradise. And the whole vision from, from the very beginning has been that God would come and he would bless his people and then they would bless the rest of the world. And this is the vision of the city of Jerusalem in the Bible, that it would be a place where God comes and he dwells, and he blesses his people, he's present with his people, and from there they would be able to bless the rest of the world. But then we have a rival city that that comes as well, and this is the city of Babylon. And this word in in, uh, the Babylonian language means gate of the God. And it's offering the same thing, this return to God's presence, this return to paradise. But the interesting thing is that in Hebrew, this word, is a, it means something different. It means confusion, and it's where we get the term babble, to babble from, that someone is saying something. It sounds like they're putting something out into the world, but it actually, instead of releasing blessing, it just creates Confusion. And this is uh, the, the slippery thing about the city of Babylon, that it makes an offer to restore paradise, but it turns out to be a place of darkness and slavery and brokenness and curse in the story of the Bible. And I think this is very true today. Uh, maybe the best example of this can, can be found in the city of, of Las Vegas. Uh, there's an artist that I really like. His name is Brandon Flowers. He's the lead singer of a band called The Killers, if you've ever heard of them. But he released solo stuff as well. And he has, he's from Las Vegas, and he, releases, he released the, st- the first song on his first album is called Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas. And he encapsulates this really well. He says this. You stumble down the boulevard of a neon-encrusted temple, and you're looking for the grace of God in the arms of a fellow stranger that were people sent off looking for relationships, looking for the grace of God, and we find it in people. Disciples hand you catalogs of concubines as you stumble down the boulevard crying, Hosanna, this exclamation of praise and joy of worship. And then the chorus is, Welcome to fabulous, welcome to fabulous Las Vegas. Give us your dreamers, your harlots, and your sins, Las Vegas. Didn't anyone tell you the house will always win? Didn't anyone tell you the house will always win? And this is the promise of Babylon in a nutshell, and I think it's the promise of Vegas as well. That you can come, you can find things to worship, you can find things that will fulfill you for a period of time, but in the end, the house will always win. That you're going to be, the promise is going to lead you not to a place of shalom, not to a place of blessing, but to a place of darkness and to a place of curse. Let me just mention one other thing about uh, these two cities and, and the way that they work in the story of the Bible. In the Bible, there's this uh, idea that the, the, there's a three-tiered universe. And so there's heaven, and then there's earth, and then there's, we'll call it just under the earth. This is the way that they conceived of the world. And so the direction the cities would find themselves in this place, the direction of these cities really matters. And so in uh, one of the earliest stories about Babylon, we're introduced to this tower that people make. And so they come together, and they make this tower. And the whole idea of it is that they are going to reach up towards the gods, that they're going to become like gods themselves. And it's really interesting in that narrative, it uses this language, that they build this tower, and they come together to make a name for themselves. To make a name for themselves. And this is a reaction to the loss of shalom that they have here, that they're looking for something to worship, and so people try to put themselves in that place. People don't know who they are, and they have to find another way to to get their identity. And this is true of back then, and it's true today, that people come to the city to find themselves, to know that they're someone, to know that they're okay. And Tim Keller, who has written a lot about cities, says this, that makes cities places of exhaustion, because we're always working to prove ourselves in cities. We come here to make a name for ourselves, to know. So we we get exhausted because we're running and running and running and running and trying to prove ourselves all the time. And once you've proved yourself to one group of people, there's always another group of people that you're coming to prove yourself to. This reaching upwards to try to make a name for ourselves. And he says because cities are places of exhaustion, they also end up being places of oppression. Because if you are trying to make a name for yourself, you're going to have to step on certain people to do that. And you're going to need to feel superior to other people to know that you're okay. And we're going to be so busy doing the different things that we need to do that we won't take part in caring for the vulnerable in doing the hard work of reconciliation because we're so busy trying to make a name for ourselves. Maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll think about it. But it won't be part of our lives. And so this is the story of Babylon or the direction of it, that it is a place that's going up, that's trying to reach upwards. But the city of Jerusalem goes in the opposite direction. The vision of the garden and the vision of the city of Jerusalem is the same. That God is a God who comes down. That God comes into the garden. In the last part of the the story, uh, in, in the early parts of Genesis, God comes and makes his home in the garden with the people. And it becomes a place of rest. And from that place of rest, God says, you can now create. And Jerusalem is supposed to be the same thing. It's the city where God dwells. It's the city where he brings his rest. And so the people are at rest, and from there they can bless the rest of the world. It's a very different vision of what it means to be human. And it's, a very, it's the opposite direction of Babylon. And so even though these are real places in the Bible, and as you read through the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll, you'll continually see references to Jerusalem or you know, the king of Babylon, um, there also become things that are used figuratively as well. And it's in encouraging the first readers and all of us to kind of ask this question. You know, what are we cultivating? What kind of world are we making? Are we partnering with God to create places of shalom? Or are we partnering with the darkness? Are we trying, are we sent out in search of an identity trying to make a name for ourselves? Or are we finding places of rest where God comes down and he blesses us and therefore we're able to bless the rest of the world? Which direction are our lives Are our lives going? And now, based on, so these are all questions that we should be asking ourselves when we read through the scripture to this point in time. Now, based on this idea that Jerusalem was kind of this new vision of paradise, there are continual movements through the story to either go back to Jerusalem or recreate Jerusalem. And you'll see through the story that people get kicked out of Jerusalem and then they come back. And they get kicked out and they come back. And there's this continual drive to get back there. And, you know, kind of like it's the first make Jerusalem great again kind of like movement. Um, and, and there's this idea that, is that too soon? I don't really know. Just, uh, some deep groans here. Um, but this idea that like if we could only get back in the land, if we could only get the right kind of leadership, if we could only remake this temple, the central place in the city, then everything will work out. And we'll be able to get back to paradise. But something really interesting happens in the next chapter of the story, and we meet this person, and his name is Jesus, and he emerges onto the scene. And he's compelled to go to Jerusalem, and he even weeps over the city. He loves the city. But at the end of his life, we see him in this really interesting part of the city. We see him in a garden in the middle of the city called Gethsemane. And he's faced with this choice that every character in the Bible has been faced with. And every single one of us has been faith, faced with. Are we going to partner with God? As the Bible says, are we going to be faithful? Or are we going to try to make a name for ourselves? And he knows that going the path of God will cause him immense suffering and pain. That he's going to actually die. Or he can avoid it and go on a path for himself. And so he, he says these, these beautiful words, not my will but yours be done. And as he prays, or after he prays, he's, he, he leaves the garden, and eventually he's kicked out of the city, and they cut down a piece of the garden, they cut down a tree, and they nail him up on that outside of the city. And it looks at that point like he is just completely lost in the story, that this spiraling out of control that started just over here has now touched his life, and his life has completely spiraled out of control. But in moments before he dies, he whispers these words to someone who is right beside him. Today I will be with you in paradise. It's a fascinating comment. And it should make all of us just say, What? Like how how is this possible? How how is this dying? How is this succumbing to the darkness going to open up a new way to paradise, how is he going to bring people back to the garden? And Jesus is saying that his death will actually do something, and it doesn't mean that the physical city of Jerusalem is going to now be raised. And Jesus is really clear about that in his ministry. It's not going to be a place here on earth that he's going to create, but that he's actually opening up a story for us. He's he's reinviting us back to this part of the story and opening up a new chapter through his life, death, and resurrection a new invitation to be part of a new creation, a new city. And that's really what happens, is this story really moves from creation to new creation. And a few chapters later in the story, it picks up on this. And so I just want to read these passages for us as we get ready to close here. It's in Revelation 21. They'll be up on the screen. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And so we see over here that there's a city, there's a new city that's coming. This hope of something that God will once again, as he created here, he will come down and he will make this new city. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and it will be their God. Again, this this same theme that God wants to be with us, that he will dwell with us. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it's the inspiration for that up there. All things will become new. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the city's main streets. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are used are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. It's a beautiful reversal of all this darkness that's happened. And it won't just be, some of it it says will be wiped away, but I love this picture too, that there will just be healing. That the trees will be used for the healing of the world. That this garden that will be here, we have now moved from just a garden to a garden city. And the tree will be used for the healing of the world. And we get to partner with God and grow and continue on this work that he started here. Let's continue with the last section. It says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is the end of the story. This is where we, right here, we come back to this theme again of light, of city, of garden, of paradise, and a garden city together with Jesus, working and ministering with him. And this is part of the storyline of the Bible. And we, we just sit right here in this spot in between these two places. So as we sit here and as we think about this new year, what are some invitations for us? I just want to close with a few. The first is this. I think there's an invitation for us to immerse ourselves in the story. To immerse ourselves into God's story. To learn the story. And that's part of what we talk about in the rule of life. And I just want to talk there's lots of different invitations there and I don't know. I'm not, this is just invitational. It's not telling you what to do. But there is an invitation to immerse ourselves in the story and to learn. And and one of the things we put on our rule of life, if you want to go to the next slide here, Caleb, is that uh, daily to, to read scripture and this specific invitation is scripture before phone. There's lots of scientific research that says the first things that you do in the morning and the last thing that you do at night have like a disproportionate effect on your life. And I've got to say, I, like, this is just me being 100% honest. I have not been great at this. And I can give you all the excuses of why. I don't sleep well. I coach hockey very early in the morning. I have to look at my phone. All these different things. But this is a commitment that I want to make to be much better at this year, is to scripture before phone in the morning. To find some time to be in God's story. And I don't know what that is for you, but just finding different ways to immerse yourself. You know, it's fascinating. We have more versions of the story. Of God's story, like there's literally a version for any any person out there. It's like there's like the left-handed golfer's version, okay, of the Bible. So it's like you're like there's nothing that speaks to me. It's like there is, okay. And you can get them in any different way. You can get them on your phone, on your computer. You can get them in paper. Uh, just an invitation for us to immerse ourselves in the story in this new season that we can be able to learn what God's story is, and then that, and that's the the, the second part is based on us learning the story, which is to find ourselves in the story, to immerse ourselves there. And so there's lots of different implications for us to find ourselves in this story. Let me just give you a couple. The first thing I want to say is, is that what comes out really clearly in this story is that God actually wants to be with us. And I want to individualize us, even though it is, in the Bible it's so often us, that God actually wants to be with you. He deeply wants to be with you. And you know, some of us are just apathetic, I think, about our relationship with God, and that's a certain set of problems. But I also know that there's some of us here that we just, we've gone out into the world, we've gone into Babylon, we've, we live this life in search of ourselves, in search of our identity. And we've put ourselves out there to lots of people. And the general feeling that we have is that nobody really wants us, nobody wants to be with us. That's the experience that we've had in our back and forth with people in this world. And we think if there is a God, there's no way that God would want to be with me. He would probably just reject me. That's been my experience with everybody else. And I think one of the things that comes across most clearly in this story is that God creates a world because He wants to be with us. We reject Him, but He doesn't give up. He comes and dwells in the city because He wants to be with us. He wants to bless. And we continually reject Him, so He comes Himself. And Jesus says, I want to be with you. And he creates a world where it says we will be with him. This is the invitation of God all along. And as hard as it may be to believe, there's this invitation for each one of us to be with God, that he longs to be with you. It's his deepest desire to be with you, to be with us. And that's one of the reasons why dwelling in his story is so important and taking time to be in his his story is so important because that's his greatest offer is his desire to be with us. And I, I think there's probably some people in here today that just have forgot, like not forgot that, but it's very hard to believe. And I just want to say to you from rehearsing this story in every step of it, there's this call out from God that says, I want to be with you. No matter who you are, no matter how distant you feel from me, that God wants to dwell with you. The second thing I think that this, this story... Um, really can say to us, and I think it's really important for us in this moment in time, but also at this time of the year, is that this is not our home. This is not our home. I think that at the beginning of the year, one of the things we we do uh, is we look at how to optimize our lives and how to optimize our space. And, and, and we live in this tension of how to make things better, basically, here. And we live in this massive tension, according to this story, that we are people who are creators. We're made to be like God, to reflect him into the world. And so we're going to create. We're going to build. And we're people who are made for paradise. We're, me- we're people who are made for this idyllic situation. And there's a great vision that Jesus offers us that opens the door to paradise, but we live here. We don't live in this moment of paradise. We live right here in the in-between times. And the temptation for, for us is then to, that we find, we try to find paradise in this moment that we live in right now. And some of us do this in a very tangible and individualistic ways. Some of us, the biggest thing that we think about, the thing that we worry about, the thing that's on our mind all the time, is like our, it's our homes, the renovation that I'm going to do or the home that I'm going to buy, or when I'm finally going to be able to move out of Vancouver and afford a backyard. Whatever that vision is, that's 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 paradise for you. That's the way that you're making this dream of paradise very tangible. Or maybe it's your wardrobe, or maybe it's your social media accounts, or maybe it's Strava. Whatever it is, you know, this year I'm going to lose 10 pounds, next year Tour de France, right? Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen, right? Paradise. And we just try to immunitize this and to make it happen now. Some of us, we, we don't do it individually, we do it more corporately. And we try to make this city paradise. We try to make Vancouver paradise, and, and so maybe we get very politically involved. Some of us do this culturally. That we try to find our home here by figuring out who we are culturally. And I, I, I know this personally very much. So my Ethnically, I'm half Chinese and half probably German. And talking with my mom, I realized that we actually don't know. I might be Ukrainian, I might be Russian, I might be German. I don't know. I'm just the person who's all over the board here. Um, and then I was born in Canada. And my whole life, I've just kind of had this question of, like, who am I? Am I Chinese? Am I Canadian? Am I, you know, what exactly am I? My, my friends used to call me Haffy. That was like my nickname as a kid growing up. So I guess half person of not being in either place. And I know that talking with many of you, you, you can understand that. That our we think that if we could just culturally figure out who we are, then I would be okay. I would find a home. I listen to this podcast called Asian Enough. They just interview Asian people and they say, are you Asian? Like basically this question that we feel like we're not, are we Asian enough to be accepted into the Asian community? And so all of us diaspora people deal with that reality. Who am I? And if I could just, we, we think if we could just figure it out, I would know who I am and I'd be okay. I'd find a home. I think our indigenous people in Canada are dealing with this right now too. This is the homeland, but their culture and their language has been stolen. And there's this idea that if we can go back and get it, then we'll know who we are. And there's a truth to that. But the, the Bible is actually inviting us to a different place into a different home. It says that this is, this is not our ultimate home. And so we're called to love our city. We're called to work for the shalom of the city. We're called to sacrificially serve and love our city. But we're never supposed to mistake that this is our home that we always have two homes, that our home is with Jesus and we have this future hope, but we live in this place of tension right here. And that's the, the, the um, invitation for each one of us to remember that we are citizens of another place. And I think as you think about this year coming up ahead, are you living into that dual tension of who you are or are you trying to make it happen now that this paradise comes and lives with you now? And finally, as we close, I just want to say one last thing. This story tells us very clearly that we're not the hero. You know, when I read this story, I'm reminded that I cannot, with all the the problems that have happened in the story and with all the problems that we see in the world, I don't have enough to save. I don't have enough to reverse the curse, that there is something that's stopping us from getting back to paradise. That's the whole point of the story. But there's someone who has come, who can be the hero for us. And and every time we take communion, which we're about to do, we're reenacting that part of the story, that I can't return us to paradise, that we, with our collective good and our collective good intentions, can't return us to paradise, but someone has at the cost of his own flesh and blood. And we take that story in our hands and we literally take it into our bodies to say that that's the new story about me, that I cannot save, but there's someone who can, May my life and our lives be lived, pointed to his, that we may work together with him and with each other into the new creation. Let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you for your story. And there's so many different themes that run through, um, but this one of the city uh, does touch me and and I think does, does touch all of us as people who live in the city. And so I pray for each one of us as we are people who... Um, receive this story, receive the effects of of sin in our lives that we're sent out searching for an identity, trying to make a name for ourselves? Would you instead, as we sang earlier, would you give us the name of Jesus as our identity? Would we find ourselves in him? Would we receive his invitation to a different story? And would we receive the invitation to to co-create with him and with each other? So as we sing now, would you drill these truths into our heart? As we pray with one another, as we receive communion, as we give, as we respond in various different ways, may they be all participations in your story. And from this place, we ask that your story would go out into the city that so desperately needs it. And may we be a group of people who are actively watching how we can, as people who have been blessed by you, bless the world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.